This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome again to season four of What I Did Next from ANT Media. I'm Malak Fouad, your host. My guests on the show are leaders in their fields from across the Middle East, and our conversations revolve around their life's pivot points. There's something for everyone here. This season, we have entrepreneurs, doctors, designers, journalists, innovators, and much more. Today's guest is one such innovator, and he is a giant in every field he's ventured into, Mo Gaudet. He is the former chief business officer of Google X, and he's the host of the super popular podcast, Slow Mo, and the author of best-selling books such as Solve for Happy, Scary Smart, and more recently, That Little Voice in Your Head. He's also behind the One Billion Happy Movement, which was inspired by his late son Ali, who tragically died in 2014. Mo and I talked a lot about Ali during our time together, and I've come to understand that Ali's memory infuses every fiber of Mo's being and determines every move he makes. This is how I've come to understand Mo. I see him as a philosopher, and he's distilled his various experiences into a very personal guide for living. I found Mo's outlook on life to be of great value to me personally. In a world that eulogizes money, fame, and glory, Mo is a man who has turned his back on these things. Once upon a time, Mo was a corporate man, living the dream in Dubai, with all the accoutrements that success brings. Today, he's happiest living out of a carry-on bag, lugging his podcast equipment around the world, having conversations with people who will widen his horizons or shine a light on a hidden corner of the human experience. As always, we start with our icebreaker questions. When was the last time Mo did something for the first time? (laughs) <laughs> almost every single day of my life. Yes, I live in a, uh, not on end of my life, of my latest life. Uh, I live in, uh, this is my second year of what I call the year of flow. So I am uh, typical of a Middle Eastern uh, male. I was uh, raised to be very disciplined. Uh, you know, I was raised to be uh, and in, I, I'm, I'm an engineer, I'm a very serious mathematician, so, you know, software developer. So basically my mind has always been into things need to be planned and executed properly. And uh, yeah, I, uh, around six years ago, I realized that this hyper-masculinity is destroying me and destroying my uh, planet, as a matter of fact. And so I've been working really hard on embracing more of my feminine side, a big part of the feminine is creativity, playfulness, and flow. And so I've been working diligently. Interestingly, the person saying working diligently is the male side of me, the masculine side of me, if you want. Uh, and, uh, and the feminine side here is attempting to 
take over if you want to allow for playfulness and for uh, serendipity and for uh, flow basically. And if you, you know, so that basically means that I do new things almost every day. I travel unplanned. I live out of one suitcase and uh, normally I have very simple rules that uh, I only book my next trip unless it's for business. I book my next trip two days before I travel. Uh, and when I and I don't book a hotel or an Airbnb until I've collected my luggage and I stay in every place and until ten at least ten days uh, and to explore it properly. But it's interesting because in your what you just said in the, the, the attempt to be spontaneous, there's also some planning in there. Like in your mind, you said I'm only allowing. I will only. I have to be somewhere for ten days. It's a beautiful observation. Right? So, 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 <laughs> so I, 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 I remember the first time I actually. So I, I work every year on what I call an, a, new year, a New Year's intention, right? Not a, not a, a, a resolution so that it's not too strict, but it's an intention. This is where I want my life to be that year. And uh, I remember when I, st when I started to work on my feminine side. Remember, I mean, at the time I was maybe forty seven or something. And so I had so many years of being conditioned to use my masculine, right? And there's nothing wrong with using your strengths uh, to work on your, uh, you know, less developed sides. So I do, um, you know, when, the first year I wrote down in my New Year's intentions that, I, that this is what was going to be a year of flow was last year. And uh, like I always did with New Year's intentions, I said, this is my year of flow. And accordingly now, I am going to write down exactly what the plan to flow is. And I was like, that sounds absolutely stupid. A contradiction in terms. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like a total uh, you know, a contradiction. And, and so I ended up, of course, uh, what I do what I call, I write what I call guidelines. And so guidelines basically allows you to stop thinking. So, uh, so you know, the, the, the only way you can really uh, move from a place that you are in to another place is to use your strength, uh, but but not in a way that that distracts the flow, if you will. It's interesting because it sounds to me like you're listening very much to your intuition and you're following whatever's coming in front of you, you're accepting it and you're going with that. So you are in flow, as you said, very much. You see, the, the, the masculine thinks uh, that we humans are supposed to be in control, that analytical thinking is intelligence. When, when you connect more to your feminine, you realize that the universe itself has an intelligence to it, and it communicates that to you in, its, in, in your intuition, through your intuition, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. and, and if you, if, you, if you allow yourself to flow with the intelligence of the universe, not only is it liberating, but it's also very, very frequently a place of wisdom. Uh, you know, I, I, I often say analytical intelligence is on the masculine side, wisdom is on the feminine side. And mm -hmm. it's really quite interesting that we, because of the capitalism of our modern world, are so uh, connected to solving the details of the problems rather than seeing the big picture, mm -hmm. where sometimes the universe, or God, I believe in God for sure, uh, you know, says you, you're supposed to be in a different place. So your analysis is not inclusive of all information. Let me trigger you to go somewhere. And when you go there, life happens. So the second question um, is, uh, is an, a social media question. And the, are you more team Instagram or are you more team Twitter? I, I, would, I would wish that I am on neither. 
when my work started to be successful back in 2017, uh, I became super viral on Facebook and LinkedIn, if I remember correctly. And I had no presence, zero presence whatsoever. I never believed in social media. I still really resist to believe in it. And so though I have a reasonable presence on Facebook that's scattered across four accounts, my books and my mission and myself and so on, a very serious presence on LinkedIn, I ended up focusing on Instagram, which is now in the 60,000 followers or something. Mm -hmm. And now I'm starting on YouTube. Uh, Twitter, I rarely ever tweet. Uh, I honestly don't understand it. Uh, I don't understand the the anger and the rage and the... Mm -hmm. You know, it's not my place, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. So on Instagram, since it's your medium of choice, what would be your top five accounts that you like, that you follow? That I follow. That you follow. I only follow my friends, honestly. I follow people that I interview on slow-mo that become my friends. Uh, and that's it, really. That's it. Yeah. I mean, my, my strategy in general, not just on social media, is to limit distractions. Okay. Uh, so, so the reality is that all of this unprompted stream flood of information getting into our head or actually just entertainment, not even information is, uh, is very, very, uh, inhuman in the way it, uh, it, we're not built for that at all. So, so I don't, uh, seek distractions. Uh, you know, if you're, if you have more than, if you have more than five accounts that you're following that are not your friends then I think you should re reconsider, mm. to be honest. You know, I, I think it's, um, we are of an age where we had a life before the online <laughs> world, right? Yeah. So we are able to make that distinction. And it's, yeah. a, it's a privilege and it's, a, it's, a, it's wonderful that we can do that. I have two teen teenage boys and I worry because my younger son, who's 14, uh, is so easily distracted and he is sucked into this vortex and it consumes him uh, uh, and to the detriment of everything else. So the offline world becomes, you know, something he has to do. It's something that, you know, we worry about. I, yeah, I, I don't know how to say this any other way. Look, they're being prepared for a world that is very different than ours. So, so my, uh, my wonderful son, Ali used to say that, uh, Papa, but when I am your age, the president of the U.S. will be someone that tweeted, that, that tweeted and texted all their life and used LOL and so on and so forth. It's, it, you know, it, it is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is something that my generation would reject strongly, uh, you know, to live outside the real world. Uh, but it seems to me that the world is heading in the direction where if you don't have the skill mm -hmm of dealing with that kind of world that is hyper-distracted, uh, you may not be able to actually succeed in it. And, yeah. and you know, you can compare and ask yourself, uh, when, when I was growing up using a telephone, was a big part of connecting to my wonderful, um, you know, wife before we got married. Huh? And we would pick the, the landline phone and speak every night before we, we go to sleep. Huh? And, and, uh, and that technology to my father was like, this is weird. Like, what are you doing to yourself talking to a piece of plastic? But it was the skill of my time, right? And then, uh, you know, now today, I think the- But the, is it comparable, Mo, really? It's comparable if you take into account the world that we built as a result and the world they, they're building as a result. So, so the, the truth is, yes, you will reject 
very strongly that your kids are different than you, but they are different than you because they're growing up in a world that is different than the yeah. world you grew up in. And the trick is not to restrict them from the skills they need to deal with That's that right. world, to give them the other skills that they need to lead it. That's okay? true. So, so rather than say, leave your phone so that you're not distracted, by the way, we normally say that while we're swiping on our phones ourselves. you may as well say, all right, there are other things that you need hmm, uh, that you can use in your life that will also complement that new skill of typing very fast and being able to pay attention mm -hmm. to 14,000 yeah. four-second things. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the interesting studies around OCD uh, in general, you know, when people are obsessive about anything, uh, we're, it doesn't help to tell them stop obsessing. It helps a lot to give them other things to obsess about. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so if they if they obsess about their mental health, they will stop doing this. Yeah. If they obsess about their uh, human connection, they'll stop doing this. If they obsess about playing football or being in nature and so mm -hmm. on. So I think the, the, the skills of a, of, a, of a talented parent would be to provide those other things that would take the time. To occupy them to with to something occupy else. Them. Let's move on and uh, look a little bit at the early part of your career. I know that you began working in Egypt. Uh, you were working in the public sector at some stage at the beginning of your career. No, I served the public sector from IBM. So. From IBM. Yeah. So IBM was, you, you started with IBM in Egypt. I went very briefly to NCR in Abu Dhabi, and then I went uh, very briefly to the worst part of my career, which was to, to work for British American Tobacco. Long story, but a big learning. Uh, for a couple of years, and then uh, I went to Microsoft. From there, you made the jump to Google? To Google, and in Google, I started as vice president of emerging markets. My job, if you want, was was known as the, four, the next four billion. So uh, my task was to bring the next four billion users to Google. You know, coming from Microsoft, which tended to be a very competitive place and business-driven, revenue-driven pl place, I went to Eric Schmidt and Larry and Sergey, our CEO and founders at the time, and I said, look, you know, uh, if you give me, uh, you know, $10 million of investment, I'll get the Middle East to produce, you know, $50 million a year uh, within, you know, within a year of that investment. And I basically had business plans to propose to them. And I remember vividly as uh, Eric uh, basically looked at me and said, but that's not the way we do things in Google, Mo. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'd rather give you $50 million to invest in the region and uh, basically build a product that the users love. And then the money will not be a problem. And he was spot on. And it's a very innovative way of looking at, uh, at, at, the, biz at the growth of their own business. It's the, it's the only way that business is supposed to be before we started to get so dug deep into capitalism. Uh, you know, if you remember the days of, uh, if you're a shoemaker in a village, what you wanted to do was make good shoes. That's all you wanted. There was no marketing, no advertising, no, you know, uh, uh, promises. You just made good shoes. And when you made good shoes, people came to me and said, uh, to you and said, hey, can I have a shoe in exchange for milk for the next month or whatever that is. This truly was the basis for, for business. We just forgot it when we started to have Excel and PowerPoints yeah. and spreadsheets and investments yeah. and venture capital. I think Google had that, the early Google had that close to heart. 
and we uh, we we did really well. I started uh, more than 110 languages, like true deep understanding in the same manner of Google investing. I got Google to invest heavily, billions of dollars in those countries. And when that happened, the revenue shot through the roof uh, in no time at all. But people were actually getting the, you know, the impact, the impact of the internet, including you know, if you don't mind me saying, the Arab Spring, for example, was a result of the knowledge hmm, that people uh, started to get about the reality of their lives because of the internet, which I think in itself is a massive, 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 massive difference to people's lives. I mean, I, I, I have not lived in the Middle East for a long time, so I don't give myself the right to comment on the politics of the Middle East, but definitely I, you know, I feel proud that the knowledge that I helped bring to the Middle East actually helped people uh, make decisions that affect their there lives. There is a very altruistic element to what the founders of Google yeah. were trying to do. And that seems to match your outlook as well in how you want to work and how you want to live. It must have been a very fulfilling time for you. I have to say, weeks into being at Google, uh, I, for the first time in my long and reasonably successful career, felt that I didn't have to be anyone but myself. Because I knew at heart that if I took a decision that was going to help the users, that was going to build a good product, that was going to make a difference to people's lives, that my founders were going to be supportive. So up until this point in your life, you would say that the Google phase was a major pivot in your life. Google definitely made me a lot of what I am. I mean, the first first major change, honestly, was the idea was was some kind of a proof that, you know, that you can actually do something that makes a difference to people's lives and and make money in the process. OK. Uh, so, so that shift away from capitalism that focused on the spreadsheet into a, a capitalism that focused on humans, uh, where basically, you know, the extension of my life today with things like One Billion Happy as, as my mission, for example, uh, is based on. So perhaps without the Google phase, you wouldn't have gotten to the, the billion happy phase. That, Definitely. The two are connected. Definitely not. And, you know, I, I, if, if you know my story and why I started One Billion Happy, uh, you would know that uh, that the only reason why I thought I can make a billion people happy, or I can at least try, I'm, I don't know if I ever will, uh, but we're in the tens of millions, so we're reaching a lot of people as a small team. But the only pe reason I, 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 I ever even dared to try uh, and publicly announce that this is what I'll dedicate the rest of my life to is that I did that at Google. So, so that's the second thing. The third thing, and I have to admit, uh, you know, is that I, I realized, of course, you know, I've been extremely fortunate uh, to, to join Google in 2007. So I made a lot of money and, you know, became reasonably well known in the countries I worked in and so on. And I think, you know, I've always been fortunate. I, as I write in my first book, I, I've been a day trader before that when I was working at Microsoft and BAT and so on. And so I, I knew how to make money, but, but the, the kinds of money that Google gave me, uh, as my wonderful daughter Aya always says, uh, you know, I, I felt I was paid in advance. I felt that life God basically said, hey, you know what? Uh, here is your needs so that you don't have to worry about them. Mm -hmm. Now be useful. Now do something constructive. Yeah, yeah. Be, be useful. Yeah. Don't waste your time chasing money. And by the way, I'm not rich at all as per international standards. I gave most of my money 
uh, away and and you know uh, but i have I have enough for my T-shirts yeah. no, for a and, long time. And it's always amusing to me when, you know, I, I always read interviews or listen to interviews with the people I'm about to meet. And they all the interviews I've read with you, you were expressing that you were living a very empty life and this sort of thing. But this is a very, um, in my mind, a very easy way of compartmentalizing you in a no, sense. I mean, in, in, an, in an interesting way, I... I definitely regret my uh, stupidity, if you ask me, in terms of collecting classic cars or whatever, because in, a, in an interesting way, uh, you know, it, it, they're beautiful marvels of engineering, and I used to restore them with my own hands, and I loved, loved, loved the process. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the price of a, of a, at the time when I bought them, you know, maybe a, a classic silver shadow Rolls Royce was thirty, forty thousand dollars which could change a lot of lives, a lot of lives. Yeah, but I think also, you know, we, we always think of um, pivot points as something that, you know, a good thing that leads to another thing or, or this is a pivot. You know, you, you learned from a, a, a situation, you know, you, you might not do that today, but at that phase of your life, it's something you did. I mean, you don't have to, I don't think we always have to justify when we look back and think, oh no, that was a terrible thing that I did. It we just never, was one of those never, things. We never do anything terrible at all. I, I mean, I'm a huge, uh, uh, I say a lot, I very frequently say publicly that regret is the most stupid emotion humans have because if I put you back in that same place with the same information, the same upbringing, the same conditioning, the same uh, targets that you had at the time, you would make the exact exactly. same choice. Exactly. It's really interesting. Huh? Exactly. So, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you only have regret because with high insight, exactly. you, look, you look back and you tell yourself, hey, I should you have know, known better. I should have known better, yeah, but yeah. you didn't. But you right? didn't. And, and so, but having said that, uh, you know, it's, all, it's also interesting that none of what you do goes to waste if you pay attention. Exactly. Only if you pay attention. Yeah. If you allow yourself to, to take every experience in your life, good or bad, as a mirror, as a reflection that, that enables you to look deeply into yourself and not others and say, why have I done this? Like, what did I believe? This brings us to one of Mo's critical pivot points, the passing away of his son, Ali. We'll talk about how he took this most tragic of experiences and translated it into a mission to make a billion people happy. You'll hear that after this break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. 
You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Malak Fouad and you're listening to What I Did Next and this is my chat with Mo Gaudet. Obviously, uh, the tragedy of your son's passing. Was that the point at which you paused and reassessed? You know, I, I, I see, you know I, I've also gone through things uh, when I was a bit younger that made me reassess. And, you know, it makes you think, how do I want to then move forward? What do I want to do with my, with my time, with myself? Before I started to write about happiness and and you know the whole one billion happy approach and so on and so forth. I uh, thought that my life's purpose was to help businesses in emerging countries of the world build something as big as Google. And then somehow life takes you on a different track. And you know every minute of my day today is focused on using my engineering approach, my mathematical understanding of the world, my uh, my business contacts, my technology background, my writing skills, whatever it is, to try and make people happier. And, and it, life works in, in an interesting way. I, I believe, and I have no way to prove this, uh, that when you're ready, uh, your mission shows up. And when you're ready, it tests you. And the test was losing Ali, uh, you know, which everyone knows is the hardest. I mean, I don't know if it is the hardest, but I think for me in my heart, losing a child is the hardest feeling you can ever have as a, good, as a loving father. And yeah, for some reason, I and my ex, my beautiful, wonderful ex-wife and my daughter and every one of us just, um, yeah, we found peace through it. You've spoken a lot about how Ali was almost a role model for you. Everything, yeah. And a coach and someone you looked up to. What do you mean by that? Because I read it many times and I was trying to understand how that was for you. Pay attention, please, parents. We think that we get our kids as a uh, Play-Doh that we shape into what we want, okay? It's stupid. I'm sorry, I'm, I, I don't mean that, and in in, I apologize. I don't want to offend anyone. But my, my wonderful ex, which I believe was the best mother on the planet, still is, uh, you know, basically came to me one day and she said, they're not mine and they're not me. Okay, my kids are not mine and they're not me. I, can, I don't have the right to tell them what they want to do with their life. I only have the right to be there for them when they make choices so that I enable them to find the path through them. Did you think the same way as her? I learned a lot from her. I didn't. At the time, you didn't think that way. Of course way. not, right? When you see it that way, it applies to so many aspects huh, of, uh, of dealing with our kids, including, by the way, if you have any wisdom at all, you realize that we are born in our best shape, okay? We're born happy, we're born peaceful, we're born contented, we're born uh, connected, we're born with no fears, we're born with no You talk illusions. about that in your books. Absolutely. Yeah. We're born with yeah. no egos, okay? And then we fall out of that almost state of perfection hmm, into a state of being human, of being attached, of being averse, of being always dissatisfied. 
and 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 all of those are not the nature of the child that you were born. Hmm? Mm -hmm. The child that you were born is always contented and happy if the, if it's given its basic needs for survival. Mm -hmm. I noticed that very early on. I noticed that my my kids were so wise. Hmm? It almost seems that we are born wise, and then we you know we're we're affected with our foolishness. It's not the other way around. And the environment affects us. Yeah, and 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 so interestingly, you know, we humans simply need to get rid of our foolishness so that we found our residual wisdom remaining within us that almost came to the world with us. And and so I did what I felt was right at the time. I just listened. I listened to them instead of telling them what to do. I listened to them. And 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 from I, I still one of my favorite photographs of all time was me and Ali sitting in, on a beach in Abu Dhabi when we first went, left Egypt in 1995 uh, on like a little uh, um, ledge. And my friend took the photo from behind and it's me and Ali looking into the beach and Ali talking, okay? And I'm sitting there looking at him and listening, okay? He must have been three or something at the time, but I just found so much wisdom in his nature, in his innate, um, you know, instinct if you want it's interesting because for someone who's so scientific and from from an engineering background and a and a hardcore business environment it's almost like he was your therapy like he was your your anchor and and the place where you were he was my heart. your calm your calmness i i don't know how to say this so don't take this as a sound bite take it in context science is stupid okay it's as simple as that. Everything that we've created with science is amazing for the physical world. But any smart human being understands that not all of life is physical, that there are lots of parts of, of the parts of life, whether you believe in an, you know, a divine being or you believe that there are other worlds that we're not aware of, which somehow science proves actually in terms of multiverses or whatever, or you simply believe that love exists and love is non-physical, then there needs to be another method other than the scientific method that uh, that analyzes everything that's non-physical and and that is found in you know in spirituality and philosophy it's understood by intuition and it's felt in the heart mm -hmm. okay and and if you if you allow yourself to un to accept that then what happens is that that heart gets blurred with the brain it's not the other way around hmm? And so to be able to, to get access to a beautiful child with his heart hmm, that can actually show you what the heart is all about, you're in a much better place. Yeah. Uh, after he passed, you, how did you go from what must have been a horrendous state of grief to eventually the, 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 the project of Billion Happy? Did you go into therapy? Did you deal with it as a family how did you go from this horrendous tragedy the the worst thing that happened to you to this extremely positive a project of a billion happy so I'm, I'm born and raised in the middle east so very 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 deeply exposed to islam and even though there is a lot of debate about some of the teachings uh you know strictness let's say strictness that the scholars of Islam try to apply to all of us. Islam is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful religion that basically is understood in its name. Huh? Islam is to find peace through the act of surrender. That's Islam. That's 
It's not Salam, which is peace only. It's Islam, which is basically surrender and you'll find peace. Surrender to the mighty wheels of life and you will find peace. And so to start with, we are almost fully conditioned, especially in the cases of mass disasters like losing a child, to refer to that concept first, to, to find a bit of acceptance at the beginning. But I was heavily aided uh, to, get, to, to, get, to, to get there with very clear messages, if you want. Um, so, so, uh, so Ali uh, leaves our world, and the first thing that happens is uh, his wonderful mother walks into the, um, uh, to the uh, intensive care room, kisses him on the forehead, and says, uh, we are of God and we return to God. Habibi, you are finally home, she said. Habibi, you are finally home. And if you understood the angelic nature of Ali, you would actually agree that his home was not this very harsh and, and, and controversial life that we live. I think that realization hits hard in both of our hearts, that even though the traditional way of looking at death is to say, my son is no longer living, uh, I think the way we looked at it is our son lived a wonderful life. And right before life started to become very difficult, which is what happens to most of us when we graduate and engage in life and go into all of the lies and deceit and so on, that he was spared that bit of life, yeah, if you want. Yeah. So that was the first message. Uh, the second message was even stronger. So you understand the five stages of grief. Yeah. And you start with denial and then you get into uh, bargaining and then you get into anger and then you get into depression and then eventually you get to acceptance. 2014, I had been almost seven years at Google, very prominent uh, in the Middle East uh, region, connected to very senior government uh, people. And so a very senior official in the Dubai, gov Dubai government called and said, Mo, I heard uh, I'm very sorry, and you know we will get to the bottom of this. Do you mind if we perform an autopsy on Ali's body? And so I looked at Nibel, my, my wife then, and I said, Nibel, do you mind if they do that? And she looked at me with a tear in her eye and said, would it bring Ali back? And I think, I think that, that would it bring Ali back uh, just puts things in perspective, that nothing you can ever do will bring him back. Okay? And there is a finality to death that I could hit my head against the wall for 27 years, Ali was not going to come back. And I think that immediately anchored us in acceptance. And not acceptance as in like, hey, we're happy about it, but you just get the realization that this is it, okay? That this is not gonna change. Four days later, uh, I think was probably the most pivotal point of my entire life. Uh, Ali, Aya, uh, Habibti, my, my daughter, was Ali's, definitely Ali's best friend. They were so close. Ali was older, right? One year, one yeah. and a half years older. But he was such a kind, amazing, uh, you know, loving brother that he would call her twice a day. She lived in Montreal, he lived in Boston. And, uh, and you know, one of them would be a, an hour, almost every single day. And so they were very close. And two weeks before he died, he uh, told her that he had a dream. And his dream was that he, he said, uh, he was everywhere and part of everyone, which interestingly is the definition of death in many spiritual teachings because you're, you're outside space time if you want. Uh, she said, 
that he told her he felt so amazing that he didn't want to wake up and be back in his body. So remember, I am a grieving father in pain. This is four days after he left. And, and I heard this. And in my blurry mind, the only thing I, I heard was my mentor, my, my amazing teacher, Ali, giving me a task, giving me a target, an assignment, if you want. So in my mind, I heard him say, make me everywhere and part of everyone. That's all I heard, okay? And I remember, it still tears me up every day. I remember this. I remember that all I could say was, of course, Habibi, consider it done. I was a very senior executive at Google. I knew how to reach billions of people. And so I told myself, okay, Habibi, consider it done. It's done. I'm going to take this on as a target, and I've never missed a target, ever. So you've dedicated your life to this. So I basically yeah. told myself very quickly, around an hour later, I was doing the math. And all I said was, if I do 10 million people, if I can get his, his essence, what he taught me, to 10 million people, then through six degrees of separation, 70 years later, Ali would be everywhere and part of everyone. That was the only selfish reason why I got up to write. So what was Ali's true essence? His true essence was happiness. He was calm and peaceful all his life. And he taught me everything I knew about happiness. My, my scientific mathematical brain would put happiness in equations. He would explain it, explain those equations to me in what the heart understood. Mm -hmm. In an emotional way. And, yeah, and, and together we built the model that became you know, uh, uh, viral uh, yeah. around my happiness model and so on. So I said, okay, I'll write this down. 17 days after his death, you know, you have to deal with all of the logistics and so on. I was down, uh, sitting down writing and I wrote for four and a half months straight, 600 pages at the time, the, the original draft. And then the whole universe conspired to make this book a success. Presumably, the process of writing it and of allowing yourself that time was your way of coming to terms with all of it. Spot on. I mean, from one, from one side, I was trying to document what my son taught me because I had the realization that he's no longer there. That documentation was helping me work through my unhappiness issues, my grief, my pain, and so on. I had to, to dedicate a month and a half of that uh, time to the chapter, to chapter 13, which is about death, uh, which I had, uh, you know, at the time, my biggest uh, ally, ally and consultant on it was uh, the, the head of marketing for MasterCard in the Middle East, a very dear friend called Islam Darwish. And Islam had a very unusual way. I would, I would finish the death chapter, give it to Islam, and he would basically, uh, basically, read it and then tell me, um, it's not what I want it to be yet, okay? And so I would say, why? And he says, just try to write it again and, you know, we'll talk about it. So oh, why would... did you consult him particularly? You trusted his judgment or had he been there himself? He had not been there himself. He's just very dear to my heart. And, you know, I didn't think my, my closest consultant at the time was my, uh, was my wife for sure, but I couldn't think of her as the right person to to read this. So I did that seven times. I would write it, send it to him, and uh, and then he would send it back and say, no, nah, it doesn't feel right. And I'd ask and i say, why, why? Tell me why. And he says, I don't know, it just doesn't feel right. So he was like your therapist. He was allowing way. me to be my therapist. And then on the seventh time, I said, I said uh, you have to tell me why. And he said, well, 
This is a book about happiness. You need to find a way to write about death in a way that makes me happy. And so that blew my mind. He wanted you to end the chapter with a happy note. With why, he wanted you to why, get to that arc. With why death should make us happy, okay? And, uh, and yeah, if you read that chapter, it's, called, it's chapter 13 in Solve for Happy, it actually, I, I very frequently get people texting me on social media saying, I never thought of it this way. I read a chapter about the thing I'm afraid of most, and I end up feeling happy. And you have to imagine, huh? we, authors, at least myself, we don't write for you. I mean, I love all my readers for sure, but I don't write for them, I write for me. I, I write to, to work through my own, uh, my own challenges, which are shared by other humans. And, and that's it, really. So, so to end up a chapter about the death of my son, around three, three months into the death of my son, uh, uh, with happiness, was purely, uh, you know, the biggest break, if you want. You know what's really interesting uh, is, it's been so many years now since what, 2014, um, but when you talk about it, and I know that you've spoken about this many, many times before, and you've, in a way, you formalized you, a philosophy around it. There is a sort of philosophical outlook to your son's death. Um, and you've developed this billion happy idea following it. But what I find really interesting is that a lot of people would have become sort of hardened a little bit and would have um, regurgitated the same line over and over again. But I don't feel that with you. I feel that it's still very raw and it's still sort of right here. The pain is very real. It's interesting, yeah. If you want to pretend that losing your son, your mentor, your best friend, your coach, uh, and a wonderful, wonderful soul in your life doesn't hurt, uh, you're lying, okay? The pain is very real. It's still as real today as it is. Missing him hurts, right? There's no point hiding that. Pain is not our choice. Pain comes from outside us. But what happens inside, inside each of us is our choice. So, so, you know, beyond the trigger that hurts, hmm, the rest is my choice. And the rest could be, I could let the pain linger. It could be, I could ignore my pain and ignore my reality, and that makes the pain get buried and, and, and really explode, mm -hmm. okay? Or I could, uh, um, uh, you know, burst out in anger and say, I hate life for the pain. Or I could simply say, the pain is real. Pain of life is part of life. What are we going to do about yeah. it? Yeah. Okay? And what are we going to do about it is something that most humans do very well when we go to work every day. So why is that any different? And when you go to work every day, you, you face problems, your boss asks for a report a little too quickly or whatever that is. And none of us sits in the corner and grieves. Uh, we, we find a way to say, yeah. okay, get it's, past, a, it's yeah. annoying. What am I going to do mm. about it? So I wanted to move on, uh, Mo, to your newest book, The Little Voice in Your Head, which seems to me to be more in keeping with your first book. You, you would think so, but all, all of my work is about enabling humanity to become better. Tell me about the newest book. So that little voice in your head is a simple analogy to, you know, based on the 
shocking realization that we humans now have become so good at using our digital devices uh, that we use our phones better than we use our brains. So interesting, really. Uh, you know, being a software developer most of my life, I realized very early on that our brains are just a programmable device. And there is a ton of evidence with neuroplasticity and neurogenesis and so on that allows us to understand that, even though the way our brains are programmed are a lot more effective than the way our computers are being uh, programmed. And so that little voice is an attempt to help uh, us understand how to adjust the code, the bugs in our brain, if you want, that make us do things that make us unhappy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's built on the idea that if you program your brain correctly, and you can program your brain correctly, you'll not only be more successful, but you'll be happier in the process as well. So you also have a very well-known podcast. I do. Slow Mo. I love, I love my podcast, <laughs> yes. And that seems to be taking up a lot of your time now. Uh, Time-wise, it's not. I mean, I record uh, per, per episode, takes me maybe three to four hours of work. Uh, for books, uh, every book takes me three hours a day of writing for maybe five, six months, right? Uh, but definitely slow-mo has been one of the biggest pillars of my mission in terms of distributing wisdom widely uh, to the whole world. Not my wisdom, I have no wisdom at all, I'm just a student, but I, I host some of the wisest people on the planet. Unbelievable, unbelievable stories of people who will tell you, I lived through this and I learned that so that you don't have to live through it. And it's, it is a very, uh, it was a big bet when we started slow-mo. The idea was, you know, in this very high-paced life where everyone is telling you try harder and move faster, I was, trying, I was basically saying, if you slow down for an hour, you'll go much further. And, and that's it, you know, now we've turned it into also, you know, so now we have it on video as well. And it's a very interesting quest for wisdom. So I basically take my little portable studio with me everywhere in the world and find people in the furthest corners of the earth who will teach us wisdom. And, you know, a bit like a, an Anthony Bourdain, if you want, for wisdom, not for food. If you were to look back on all your work, would you consider this phase of your life to be what you would consider your most successful phase? Absolutely, no, hands down. I mean. I've been, I'm, I'm definitely one of the most fortunate people you know. I mean, I've been given chances to make a difference and make money. And none of it, by the way, is because I'm clever. As, as my, my daughter said, I think I've been groomed to do something useful. And, uh, but I, I, I don't think I've ever been more in alignment uh, with myself than I am now. I'm, again, in my next book, which is out, it's fully written, but not out, you know, out in seven months or so called unstressable. I share uh, the story of why I'm such a, a happiness um, uh, martyr, if you want, that I, I'm giving my life to the whole concept. And I actually didn't know that. I'm writing uh, Unstressable with a wonderful British author uh, called Alice Law. And Alice uh, shared her story about how she lost her father to stress. And, and I realized when she shared her story that the reason why I'm fighting unhappiness so much is because I lost my father to stress as well, to unhappiness and depression. And I, I never actually registered this because when my father left our world, I must have been 24, 25. And, you know, I held him in my hands and then uh, 
rushed back into life. And I never really internalized why I hate unhappiness so much until Alice shared. And then I realized that this is me as well. It's interesting that when he passed away, you were at that phase where you were throwing yourself into a, what you expected to be a, a, a standard career of dry, of being very driven and, 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 and more and more and more. We, we don't have a choice. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, most of us think that you can find your peace and wisdom without being battered in life, right? I, you know, I hope that by the day I, I reach my deathbed, I've, I've understood a few things. I hope, I hope. But even today, you know, 30, 40 years into my attempt to understand anything about life, I'm still learning. I'm still discovering how stupid and uninformed I am. I'm really interested to know whether, how much reading you've done on, on mental health, have you formalized any knowledge? Or is it purely you talking to people on your podcast, uh, your experiences on your, in, your, in your own life? Or have you spoken with therapists? Have you uh, done research, formal research into this world? Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, hundreds of long conversations with some of the most prominent monks in the world, most prominent uh, neuroscientists, uh, you know, tons of research. But it, it all comes down at the top level to a very simple concept, really, that, you know, we never really understand fitness. And yet some of us managed to become Mr. Olympia or, you know, Miss Bikini, whatever, champion. Hmm? Uh, but we never really exactly understand if it's that nutrition and that rest and this exercise and so on. This is why there are hundreds of methods over there. But there is proof that if you go and work out and eat healthy, you're going to become fitter and fitter. There is also proof that if you are working on your happiness, if you go to your happiness gym, three to four times a week and do some kind of a happiness exercise, happiness practice, you'll become happier. It's as simple as that, mm, right? Mm, mm. And you know- That's in, the mathematician in you. It, it, it is an undeniable. Yeah. Huh? And, and it is uh, now that I've taught hundreds of thousands of people, I know that to be true I, there, without a doubt hmm, that if you do the work, you will become happier. Mm. Is, there is no doubt mm -hmm. about it. And mm -hmm. then neuroscience proves that beyond doubt. Uh, neuroscience will tell you it's neuroplasticity. If you watch the news every day or if you watch some kind of a, you know, without mentioning name, angry, uh, sh uh, ho you know, talk show host that is shouting at you on television, you're going to train your brain to shout. Yeah. Which is something that I really wish would change about yeah. the Middle East. Huh? Mm -hmm. If you sit in front of a calm, peaceful person that argues with logic and with, with acceptance of the other person's view, you're going to learn that too. It's neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. Your brain will, bra will build the brain circuitry that is required to be calm in a, calm in a conversation. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that, mm -hmm. right? And so can we start to build those new habits? Can we, you know, if we get stuck in traffic, which we do all over the Middle East, can we, instead of building the habit frequently over and over of cursing everything that's ever happened to our life, can we just take a podcast with us or a, or a nice piece of music or make a phone call safely to someone that we love and understand that you'll be stuck in traffic for an hour and a half a day and use the time properly, Yeah. right? And if you do that over time, 
Neuroplasticity will make you say, oh my God, I'm looking forward to the time where I can spend in peace in the car, mm. waiting to get to the to the place where uh, I need and, to go and, and, and adds, learning something new. And this adds to your happiness. Absolutely. Very simply. What's next for you? Is it more of what you're doing or is there something in your mind that you would like to achieve? Next is a masculine brain quality. We started the conversation saying <laughs> we're in flow, right? So flow, flow is to say, I'm going to be available for the world to try the absolute best that I can to deliver whatever I can stumble upon in terms of uh, knowledge or wisdom from the guests that I have on the podcast or whatever that is. I'm just going to show up every day and do the best that I can for as long as I can and hope for the best, mm -hmm, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, yeah, I do still have my, my engineer masculine executive brain on where I measure targets and tasks and, you know, try to make sure that every episode is heard a little more or mm. everything is pasted on, on social media properly or posted on social media properly. But at the end of the day, none of that is next. Okay. Yeah, all, and none of that really matters all either. We, all we have is now. Yeah. And if I can do the best that I can now, then next will be yeah. quite okay. I love the spontaneity element in your in your outlook. We're so dumb as compared to the intelligence of the universe. You you said in an interview somewhere that you have an extremist side to you, where you're fifty percent monk and you're 50% modern-day <laughs> you warrior. You, you call that an extreme. I call that peaceful. Peaceful. Yeah. It, so I'm one of the book. I, I work on several books at the same time. So Unstressable, I'm editing now. I'm also working on a book called Finding Love and a book called, uh, called Half Monk. Along with other projects, uh, I'm, I'm working on a kids' book series with uh, a dear friend, uh, um, Shelley Lewis, and I'm working on a... Um, a reflection series, we call it, with a dear friend, uh, Jessica Ivy. And so uh, we're, we're, I'm working on multiple on at the same things. time. And one of them is Half Monk. Ha half Monk is the idea that uh, we can, uh, monkhood, by the way, is not just a spiritual practice. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle that allows for reflection. It's a lifetime that, uh, lifestyle that allows, to, allows you to be with nature, to have compassion for others, to have time for yourself, to reflect on what matters, to serve. And, uh, and I believe that my life as a highly high-paced, you know, fast-paced, uh, um, highly committed executive has taken away from my ability to, to do that and to, to find those things in my life. And now that I am also busy, I'm trying to make it part of my life to include but that I in my But I wonder, life because you had that fast-paced life as a younger man, uh, you now appreciate the monk phase. I think you might not have reached this phase without having had that experience as a younger man. Not, not necessarily. So you don't have to be obese to try to start working out, okay? Sadly, when you do become obese, you start to force yourself to, to, work, to, to work out or lose weight. Uh, but the opposite is not true. You can actually stay fit all of your life. So, so you know, one of the things, of course, that I know uh, and I deal with on a daily basis because my life as a business person will sadly never be over. There will always be business contacts that will ask for my advice and, you know, work with corporate clients and so on. Uh, you know, I know for sure that, that there are ways for you to work reasonable hours and focus on your... Uh, impact on society, focus on your reflection, focus on your connection time to others, 
and be successful, even more successful by allowing that monkhood to be part mm -hmm. of your mm -hmm. lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there is no doubt that if you take my work, for example, uh, I could sit down and write for four hours or I could sit down and reflect for 20 minutes and then uh, write more in half an hour than I would in four, in, yeah. in four hours. And yeah. I, think, yeah. I think that applies to every part mm -hmm. of life. Mohammed, mm -hmm. thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm really, really pleased that we were able to do this. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and I hope we reach a few people today. I'm sure we will, a lot. Thank you. My conversation with Mo continued off camera and we compared podcasts, equipment and other geeky stuff. In our bonus episode for subscribers, which will be available next week, I talked to Mo about his second book, Scary Smart, and what our AI future looks like. You can sign up an Apple Podcasts for a free trial and get extra content during the season, as well as early access to our next episode. Thank you for listening today. This episode of What I Did Next was brought to you by ANT Media with me, Malak Fouad, and is co-produced by Chirag Desai. You can follow us on social media for video snippets from our interviews and other updates. Just search for What I Did Next on Instagram, Twitter, and on LinkedIn as well. We'd be grateful if you could take the time to leave a review of the episode in your favorite podcast player. See you soon.